0: We turn in our Bibles today to Judges 8, looking at verses 1 to 3 of this chapter, and thinking together of the life lesson, a soft answer turns away wrath. We come in this, our third study in Gideon, as we consider some of the judges at this time. A lot of focus this week has been on the sad story of the fishing vessel sinking off the coast of Greece. The vessel traveled from Libya, thought to have up to 500 migrants on board. And criticism has been leveled at the Greek coast guards for the way they've handled this situation. Could they not have intervened previously? Could they not have done more? Could they not have handled the situation better? Was the rope thrown to the stricken vessel contributory? To the vessel sinking. The Greek authorities have been defending the actions of their coast guards, while others have been critical of the actions that they have performed. But in this charged situation, a representative of the United Nations has gently, graciously, mildly encouraged the Greek coast guards. To receive further training to deal with similar situations like this, which might arise. It was a soft answer, a soft statement in the presence of this heated discussion, and it stood out. And here in Judges 8, verses 1 to 3, we come to consider this life lesson something. Which all of us have experienced in a good way, in a bad way, in our lives. The ways we've reacted in different circumstances. But what a lesson this is for us here. A soft answer turning away. Wrath. We've thought of various lessons within the book of Judges over the past weeks. We've thought of reaping what we sow. We've thought of thinking before we speak. We've thought of the grace of God preventing us from such terrible circumstances that others have experienced. We've thought of all things for the glory of God. Today we come to this lesson which Proverbs enunciates for us in chapter 15 verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath. And in chapter 25 verse 15 with patience A ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Think first of the the wild accusation, then the wise answer, and then the welcome aftermath of this circumstance. Think of the wild accusation in in verse 1, brought from the, the Ephraimites to Gideon. It came not from the enemy, from the Midianites, or or from the others that they were fighting, but from the Ephraimites. They were a large tribe uh, within the nation of Israel. They had settled in the center of the land of Palestine, and so they were not liable to the attacks from the north, south, east, and west that other tribes were. They had consolidated. They had grown bigger. They had grown stronger. They were an important tribe within the nation of Israel. Additional to this was that they were historically related to Gideon's tribe, the tribe of Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh, as you know, the two sons of Joseph, were historically linked. And so they take this perceived snub to heart that that their historical relation has not asked them to join in this important conflict. Besides this, they had been used to a leadership role within the history of Israel. Joshua had come from the tribe of Ephraim. Here now is Gideon from the tribe of Manasseh. And they feel that he's neglected them and overlooked them in this important victory in the nation's history. And so they come and they say to him in verse 1, what is this that you have done to us? Not to call us When you went to fight against Midian. And they had a point. Because Gideon hadn't called them. When he went to fight against Midian. In chapter 6 we saw that he had called the tribe of Manasseh. The tribe of Asher. The tribe of Zebulun. The tribe of Naphtali in chapter 6 and verse 35. He had summoned other tribes Tribes perhaps closer to him, tribes perhaps for other reasons, he had asked to assist him in this issue, but he had not asked the large, the influential, the leading tribe of Ephraim. But perhaps their main gripe here was the financial loss that they experienced as they saw the the enemy fleeing uh, to the the River Jordan to escape out of the land of Israel, uh, carrying uh, minimal goods and properties with them, they realized that all their wealth, their goods, their clothing, their armor was left on the battlefield. And they saw that by not being called to this conflict, they had missed out on booty on spoil, on great financial wealth. And they come to Gideon. And they challenge him. They rebuke him. They speak in an accusatory manner. What is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. The wild accusation. Boris Johnston made it to the top, didn't he? In the, in the political world. He became prime minister. He rose through the ranks. He overcame the hurdles, the obstacles. He rose to the top. He got married. His wife is expecting their third child. This really should have been the happiest time in Boris Johnston's life. But instead... He's been spoiled by investigations and now his resignation as an MP. And for Gideon, this should have been the happiest time in his experience. He had been called. His, his weakness, his sense of unworthiness has all been overcome He'd been assured of God's presence and and God's power and and victory has come, but by the the power of God, the enemy has been driven away. This should have been a moment of, of pure joy and celebration and elation, but instead, the Ephraimites come with this accusation to him. Why did you not ask us to the battle? And perhaps as you look over your life, you have found that this has been your experience. In the moments of greatest joy, there has been something that has entered to spoil your experience and your elation. Some brides cannot fully enjoy their wedding day because one of their parents is no longer living. Some companies who have made record profits cannot enjoy their success because of some litigation going through the courts against them at that time. And sometimes, like Gideon, in the moments of greatest success and joy, there is an issue, an element, something which pains us and troubles us. And why in God's providence does that happen? Doesn't it remind us that our pure joy, our full joy is not found in this world, but is reserved for heaven? It is only in heaven, Revelation 7 says, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And it keeps us humble, doesn't it? Could Gideon have got above himself? Could the success have gone to his head? Could he have become proud and wild with this victory? Sometimes in God's providence, our success is tinted with this element of sorrow or pain. To keep our feet on the ground. To remind us of our humanness. A wild accusation. Secondly, a wise answer. How would you have responded to this? Gideon responds in a wise and an exemplary way. And there, there's two strands uh, to his response for us to, to carry away in our two hands from church today. One is his humility and the other is the glory he gives to God. One is his humility. Now, now Gideon responds uh, to this accusation here in, in a humble way. And he skillfully draws uh, on an image which relates to the experience of these Ephraimites. He, he uses this image of the harvest. Uh, and you remember perhaps uh, in the chapters we've studied that Zeb and Oreb, uh, they were killed at the, the wine press. So he's, he's linking uh, the, the victory which the Ephraimites had uh, over these uh, foreign powers to this metaphor that he uses here of the, the 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 harvest and of the gleaning. So the gleaning then is picking up the scraps. It's after the harvest is over. There's some strays of corn, straws of corn left in the field, some bits of fruit left on the branches, on the bushes. The poor are allowed to go and pick the fruit to gather up the straw, as Ruth was allowed to do in the time of Boaz. And he says to the Ephraimites, all hot and bothered, that's like me. That's like what I have done. My element of the victory over the Midianites was just like picking up the scraps. It was, it, was, it was small. It was little. But what you have done in conquering Zeb and Oreb, that's like the harvest. That's like the big thing. That's like the main event. Your input, your part in this whole thing, it is massive. And so he puts himself down and his role And he elevates and perhaps overplays and values their role in conquering Zeb and Oreb. And in doing that, he appeases their gripe. But in doing this, Gideon is exemplary in giving God his rightful place. He says in verse 3, God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. Though he puts himself down in humility and says, what I have done is like picking up the scraps. Though he elevates what the Ephraimites have done in conquering Zeb and Oreb, he preserves the highest place, the greatest spot for God. God has given into your hands the princes, whatever I have done. Whatever you have done, ultimately, God in his power and his providence has accomplished this victory. Perhaps there is a a mild rebuke in his use of the title God in verse 3. He doesn't use the word Lord, that closer term perhaps, that term of covenant, that term of recognition of God's love and grace and forgiveness, perhaps Gideon in using this title God here is giving a mild rebuke to the Ephraimites and speaking this way he might be saying you're indicating that your walk with God is not very close. You're not near the covenant God. You're not near the Lord. You're not near Jehovah. You're not feeding on his love. His grace is not molding you and changing you and affecting your life. There's a distance a gap. God has given into your hands, the princess. In for Samuel, there's wonderful examples of the soft answer, isn't there? Chapter twenty-four: David in the cave at En Gedi. He doesn't kill Saul who's pursuing him. He cuts off a piece of his garment, and then when Saul leaves the cave, David speaks to him, he calls himself a a flea, a dead dog. Why are you chasing me, Saul? You've got your palace, you've got your wealth, you've got your bed to, to go in. Why are you chasing such an unworthy person like me? And then in the next chapter, Abigail speaks to David. Her husband Naboth has been unkind to David and disrespectful to David and David is summoning his men to come and slaughter all the males of Naboth's household and Abigail meets him and speaks to him softly and reasons with him and they come to a place of agreement and mercy and peace. The soft answer turning away the wrath. Sometimes it's not wise to use all the ammunition available to us in a discussion or an argument. There is not a lot included in Gideon's answer here. He he majors primarily on psychological reasons rather than theological reasons. He could have used the argument, well, God called me. An angel appeared to me. The Spirit of God directed me to go to those other tribes and, and, and call them as chapter 6 indicates. There are many other things that Gideon could have said in this moment. But were the Ephraimites ready for that? Were they open for that? Instead, he humbles himself. And he raises their value and importance. the wise answer. And thirdly, the welcome aftermath. The text says at the end of verse 3, then their anger against him subsided when he said this. What was it in what he said? Was it his humility, minimizing his Contribution, just the the gleaning of the harvest? Was it his lack of aggression towards them that that calmed them down? Was it his interpretation of of their events and their contribution? Was it his injecting God into the conversation that that brought about this abating of of their aggression? Their spirit as the margin has it, their anger against him subsided. The word subsided means to drop the wings to let the hands sink. Some action which was in place, which was intended, is, is now abated. His words were like soothing oil on a burning sore, like water on a raging fire. Their anger against him subsided. And the wisdom of Gideon here is, is evident by the the very opposite behaviour of Jephthah in chapter 12 1-6 and you can look at that later on today. There Jephthah once again is up against the Ephraimites a very similar thing has happened, he hasn't asked he hasn't asked them to come and fight with him against the Ammonites and the Ephraimites are accusing Jephthah, why did you not ask us to come and fight with you against the Ammonites and Jephthah uses fire to fight fire. And the end result is that Jephthah fights against the Ephraimites and 42,000 people die. But here is Gideon. The soft answer turns away wrath. Melanchthon, the right-hand man of uh, Luther, he comments on uh, this proverb from chapter 15 of Proverbs. And he he makes this point that it's not just enough for us not to, to, to start strife, but that when strife is started by others, that we're to do all we can to get peace. Proverbs twenty-five, fifteen says, "A soft tongue will break a bone." And it's often the right response to a debate, to a disagreement. Aggression distances our opponent, riles our opponent, fuels the heat in the argument, but a soft tongue will break a bone. Matthew Poole interprets bone in Proverbs twenty-five fifteen 15 as, as a description of the hardness of someone's heart. He, he refers to the use of oil, soft, gentle, soothing, which was used to sink through the flesh to the very bone, as Psalm 109 verse 18 says, May it soak into his body like oil into his bones. The oil used to soften the bones, the soft tongue breaking the hardened spirit. And this is a telling illustration, isn't it? That, that, that we look at something which is hard and, and we, we think, well, we need something hard to, to address this other thing that's hard. It's a hammer we need to soften this stone or, or, or meet this object that seems obstinate. But here this proverb is saying there is this other way that the oil which is smooth, the oil which is soft, the oil which is pliable, that the soft oil can break the hard spirit. Perhaps reflecting in this proverb, the Greeks say, the tongue has no bones, yet it breaks bones. The Turks say, one drop of honey catches more bees than a ton of vinegar. We all know that sometimes we have to give answers that anger our opponent. John Calvin said that we're to smash in the teeth of hypocrites. Sometimes strong answers are to be given to those when there's a principle at stake, when there's a doctrine at stake. Jesus took on his opponents questioning his divinity. Paul took on his opponents questioning salvation by faith and by grace. And there are times when we have to give answers that will anger our opponents, and we're called to do that. But many times, the best way the right way is the soft answer that will turn away wrath. Like the Ephraimites, our spirit was unjustly against God as theirs was against Gideon. Despite all his goodness to us, we unjustly Rejected God, despised God, ignored God, spoke against God. The only way for peace was for God to send his son Jesus Christ from heaven to take on himself, our very nature, to live perfectly in this world and go to the cross for our redemption. The Puritans were fond of the metaphor which, which I, 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 I'm not sure that the exactness of it, but they used it repeatedly. That the only element which can soften a diamond is goat's blood. And they used this metaphor to, to apply it to our hearts. That what will soften our hearts, what will bring reconciliation between God and us, is contemplating the love of God in his Son, Jesus Christ. Yes, we can look at our sin, and we can weep over our sin, and and we should do that, but what will soften our hearts, what will change our hearts, is viewing and appropriating the blood of Jesus Christ into our life. A soft answer, then, turns away wrath.